You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. We recently began a new series in the books of 1 and 2 Kings called Desiring the Kingdom. And as we look at these books, which cover a period of 400 years of the history of the nation of Israel, what we're seeing in these, what we're studying in these passages uh, we're looking at them in light of the fact that God has made a promise to us to give us an everlasting kingdom and a true king in Jesus Christ. And so we're studying these stories in First and Second Kings, particularly with a view towards that promise. That's why we call this series Desiring the Kingdom. So please uh, read with me our text today, which is going to come from First Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. We're going to study the whole chapter, but together we're going to read uh, these verses. 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34, it says this, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom." This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we study it, Lord, give us insight. Help us to apply these great truths to our lives. So Lord, help us to understand, help us to apply that we wouldn't only be hearers of your word, but Lord, that we would be doers. That we wouldn't only have knowledge, but Lord, that we would act and do as you see fit. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever met somebody who was incredibly smart when it came to books or business or even giving other people advice. But when it came to their own life, it was just a mess, right? You've met one of these people and you wonder, how can this person be so smart and yet so dumb at the same time, right? They're smart when it comes to things outside of themselves. But when it comes to their own life, it seems as if they don't apply the same intelligence and wisdom that they have. And here in the opening chapters of the book of 1 Kings, we're studying the life of King Solomon. And what we're going to see in Solomon's life is that he was, on the one hand, incredibly intelligent. And yet Solomon's problem was that although he knew many things and he even knew the right things to do, he didn't do them. Now, let me just say from the outset, it's really easy for us to look at a person like Solomon uh, from, you know, 3,000 years separated from him with a sense of superiority, right? Looking down our noses and shaking our heads at him and saying, wow, I can't believe that he was like that. Good thing I'm not like that because look at him. Let me tell you this. If you look at Solomon and that's your conclusion, you have missed the entire point of studying his life. 
Because here's why. In the epistle of James, James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, we are told that the Bible is not a window through which we look out at other people's lives to point out their faults. Rather, the Bible is a mirror which helps us to see ourselves and to see ourselves as we truly are. So when we look at the life of Solomon and we see his mistakes as obvious as they are to us as we read them, our response cannot be to just sit back and pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, look how good I am compared to him. No, no, no. It needs to be to say, wow, I have those same tendencies that Solomon had. I sometimes do those same things that he did. And look where it led to him. God, help me. God, forgive me. God, give me your grace to strengthen me and protect me. But ultimately, as we look at Solomon, we want to not only see ourselves in him, but we also want to see through him. So we don't only want to see ourselves in him, but through him, we want to see and be pointed to the one whom the Bible calls the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. The title of today's message is The Greater Than Solomon. And there are three key elements in this chapter, in this story that we read here in 1 Kings chapter 4 that you need to see in order to understand it. First of all, there is the purpose of organization. The purpose of organization. The second is the problem with horses. And the third one is the beginning of wisdom. So once again, the purpose of organization, the problem with horses, and the beginning of wisdom. Let's start by talking about that first one, the purpose of organization. Here in 1 Kings chapter 4, it begins with a long list of names that are very hard to pronounce. Now, if there's one thing that people love about reading the Bible, it's long lists of foreign names of people you will never meet. Now, there can be this tendency and this temptation to skip over these parts. How many of you have done that, right? You're reading the Bible. Okay, long list of names. I'm just going to skip over that part and not pay much attention to it. But it's always important to ask when you come to one of these sections to ask the question, why is this list of names recorded here? Because there's usually a reason. And here in 1 Kings chapter 4, there is a reason why these names are listed here. And the reason is to show us Solomon's wisdom as a leader, his wisdom in organizing the people and the resources of the nation of Israel. And, and there's one name in the list, though, that I, I really want to point out that just kind of pops out from the page. Let me read to you the first four verses. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Did you notice that name there? Abiathar. Now, if you've been with us through our study, you remember that back in chapter one, we met Abiathar back then. He was the high priest who back in chapter one joined in the rebellion against Solomon, the rebellion that tried to overthrow Solomon when Solomon was going to become king. But unlike the other rebels, as we studied uh, a few weeks ago, Abiathar received mercy because he humbled himself before the king. And as we see here, 
even though Abiathar was initially removed from his position as high priest, apparently he was eventually restored to his position as a priest and even given a place as one of Solomon's high officials in Solomon's administration in his cabinet. And this just reminds us of the power of humility, the power and importance of humility. What was lacking in the other rebels' responses was humility. We remember, of course, what it says in James and in 1 Peter, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so like Abiathar, when you and I have sinned and fallen short, when we have rebelled against God, the great King, if we will humble ourselves and ask for mercy and repent, not only does God offer forgiveness, but oftentimes we will experience restoration in our lives as well. Now this chapter goes on and for the first 19 verses of the chapter, we have a list of names and roles and duties and responsibilities that these people fulfilled in Solomon's administration. And then in verse 20, starting in verse 20, it tells us why we are told this information. And the reason is because this was a time of great prosperity and great stability and great peace in Israel. And that prosperity and security that they experienced at this time was due in large part to Solomon's skill as a leader and as an organizer. Historians refer to this period in Israel's history as Israel's golden age. This was the peak. Never before this and never again after this would Israel be as politically and militarily and economically and socially prosperous and stable as it was during the time of Solomon. We read in verse 20 that during the reign of Solomon, the population grew and increased greatly. It says that during this time, people ate and drank and they were happy. In verse 21, it tells us that during this time, the kingdom of Israel stretched all the way from the Euphrates River in the east, that's modern day Iraq, to the land of the Philistines, which by the way is the Mediterranean coast there on the eastern Mediterranean that Israel now occupies to this day, and down to the border of Egypt. Now, that's interesting. You can picture that in your mind. You can look at it on a map. This is the largest area that the kingdom of Israel would ever occupy. This is the largest size that Israel's kingdom ever reached. And the reason that's interesting is because if you go all the way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, God there is speaking to Abraham and he's telling Abraham about the land that he is going to give to Abraham's descendants. And what does he tell him? He tells him, these are the borders of the land that I will give you. The Euphrates in the east, all the way to the great river in Egypt in the west. And it says there in verse 25, now back in 1 Kings chapter 4, that all Judah and all Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree in all the days of Solomon. Beersheba is the southernmost major city in Israel. Dan is the northernmost major city in Israel. So it's saying the, the whole length of the country. We would say in the United States, we'd say from coast to coast, right? It is a way of saying the entire country lived in prosperity and safety. And there's this phrase here, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And this phrase is found, and I believe it's four places in the Bible. And it's kind of a proverbial expression, which simply means that people experienced 
peace and prosperity, peace from internal conflicts and peace from external threats. This golden age of Solomon, it was due in large part to Solomon's wisdom as a leader. In our study last week, we saw how Solomon asked God to give him wisdom so that he could lead the people well, so he could be a good king. And we saw how God was pleased with that request and God granted that request. He gave Solomon the wisdom he desired. And one of the most famous stories about Solomon is the one we read last week, how Solomon wisely dealt with a court case involving two mothers. And that was an example of the fact that indeed God had given him this extra measure of wisdom. But now here in chapter four, what we have here is another example of Solomon's great wisdom. And his great wisdom is seen in how he organized and used the people and the resources of Israel in a way that caused the country to flourish and succeed. Solomon apparently knew how to select, train, and supervise leaders in such a way that it helped others. So this was the strength of his kingdom, was his uh, skill as a leader of leaders. And what's interesting is you can see the way that Solomon organized the nation of Israel is very similar to the way that countries and large businesses are organized today. There's a department of this and a ministry of that. So Solomon was way ahead of his time as an organizational leader. Now Solomon's great leader, of course, or Solomon's great wisdom made him a leader of leaders and a master organizer. He understood that God is a God of order and that things operate more effectively when they are organized well. And as a result of Solomon's wisdom in organizing the nation, the nation prospered. Thinking about organization, sometimes I meet people, and you probably do too, who say this phrase. They say, I don't like organized religion. They might say, uh, well, maybe there's a God, or, or maybe I like Jesus, but I don't know about organized religion. I don't like that. Well, I would just say, what, what is the alternative? disorganized religion? Is that what you like? Is that what you're advocating for? Is being disorganized more spiritual than being organized? Now, I've met a lot of people who would say exactly that. The assumption is that organization is the enemy of spirituality because they, they feel that if you organize things too much, then you limit God or you don't leave room for God's spirit to lead or to move. But I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. In fact, if you look throughout the Bible, you will notice that spirituality and organization often work hand in hand and they're part of God's design. And I think that for many people, this is a missing dynamic in their spiritual life and in their growth as a Christian in their walk with God. It might be some organization and some structure is what is needed to help you take that next step. Think about a beautiful garden. And that, this is an important metaphor because a garden is actually a metaphor that God uses in the Bible many times to describe our spiritual life. Okay, so think about a garden. A garden needs to be tended. It takes work. It takes structure and organization. You make a choice of what you want to grow and what you don't want to grow. You plant certain things and you pull out other things in order to make an environment where the kinds of things that you want to grow can grow well and the things you don't want to grow are removed. That's what makes a garden beautiful. And the Bible, again, uses this picture of a garden as a metaphor for 
spiritual life. It talks about sowing seeds. It talks about removing stones and preparing soil and watering. And again, I've heard people say, well, I think that we should just let things happen naturally. I think we should just let things happen organically. Well, I love organic things too, but think about this. One of the things that grows naturally and organically is weeds. Another thing that grows naturally is cancer. See, we live in a fallen world, and on top of that, we are fallen people. And that means that not everything that grows naturally or not everything that happens naturally is good or healthy. Some of it's bad and harmful. Even think about organic farming. Some of you might be saying, wait a second, I buy organic produce. Don't attack my organic produce. I'm not, but here's what I'm saying. Think about organic farming. It actually requires more time, more attention, more intervention, um, and that's why it's more expensive because it requires more work from the farmer to go and pull out weeds and help those plants grow. So if you want the garden of your life to be beautiful and produce things that bless and feed others, it takes work, it takes care, it takes intention. It takes time, you know, preparing the soil, planting seeds, watering, removing the rocks, weeding, right? Pulling out the weeds. Think about weeds and what they, what they represent in our lives in this metaphor, right? Weeds are things that grow naturally. They creep in naturally. You don't plant them, but they somehow show up. But if you don't remove them, what do they do? They choke out the growth of the things that you want to grow. Weeds grow naturally, but if you don't, intervene, if you don't pull them out, they will steal precious resources and limit the growth of other things. It's like cancer. If you don't cut it out and remove that cancerous growth, it will continue growing until the point where it takes over your entire body and ultimately destroys you. And so this metaphor of our lives being like a garden, of our spiritual lives being like a garden, it's really helpful. It's really important. In order for your life to be beautiful, in order for your life to be helpful and produce things that bless others, you have to create an environment which is conducive for growth and fruitfulness. And that means um, removing things that aren't helpful before they grow and take over. See, the purpose of organization and the purpose of structure in your life and in your family and in our church is just like it was with Solomon's wise administration of Israel. It creates an environment which is conducive for growth and effectiveness because you're removing the weeds. You're removing the rocks, the hard places, the hard things, right, that prevent growth. Uh, you're removing the cancerous growths which steal away precious resources and energy. And that doesn't happen on its own. It takes work. It takes care. It takes intention. Now, if you look at the lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible, for example, in Romans chapter 12 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll notice that among those lists of spiritual gifts are listed the gift of administration, the gift of leadership. See, these things are not opposed to spirituality. Rather, these are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives in order to bless the church, in order to help us grow and fulfill our callings. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, that God is not a God of disorder, and therefore everything we do in worship should be done in a way that is fitting and orderly. 
If you look throughout the Bible, you will see this pattern that God gives parameters for how he is to be worshiped and how we are to live. See, it's not willy-nilly. It's not a free-for-all. It's not just do whatever you want. No, there's order, there's structure, there are parameters. Why? Because God wants you to grow and be effective. A good example of this principle is found in the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers tells the story of how after the people of Israel had come out of Egypt, where they were enslaved, right? Remember, God brought them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and then he gave them his law at Mount Sinai. Well, then the book of Numbers, God says, okay, now it's time for you to leave Mount Sinai and go into the promised land. But before they could go into the promised land, there in the beginning of the book of Numbers, God organized them. And that's important because before they could enter the promised land, God said, you need to get organized. And so he organized them. Think about that. They had come out of Egypt as a mob, no organization, no structure, no leadership whatsoever. In order for them to fulfill their calling effectively from God to enter the promised land, to occupy that place, to be his light, a lighthouse for the nations, in order for them to fulfill their purpose and calling from God, they needed to be organized. And that's a great picture for us as well, because God has, in the same way, given us a calling, a purpose in our lives. And in order for you to fulfill the purpose of God for your life, the callings that God has placed upon your life, it will require structure. It will require order. In the book of Numbers, the people were told to take inventory of everything they had, every resource and every person. And yet, here's another interesting thing. In Numbers, as they were taking this inventory, there was one thing which they were not allowed to take inventory of, and that is the Levites. So they were to count everything, but they were not allowed to count the Levites. And the Levites, of course, were the priests. They were the priestly class. And what this teaches us is an important principle about organization. While on the one hand, God uses organization and he uses order and structure, on the other hand, there are some things that are out of your control. They're out of our control and they have to be left up to the hand of God and you have to be okay with that. See, what that means is that as you walk with God, you can't control everything and you may not always see the impact of your actions and how God uses them and so therefore you have to walk by faith and do the things that God calls you to do even if you don't see the impact. So there's some things that have to be left up to the hand of God. That's why it says, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, using another gardening metaphor, it says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So at my house lately, we've been gardening and planting seeds in a planter box. So we got all these seeds, we got this planter box, and we were given kind of an outdoor mini greenhouse where we're growing them. So we planted all these seeds in the dirt, and now we're waiting for them to grow. We're watering them. So we have a four-year-old daughter, and of course, she's really excited about this. She can't wait for the plants to grow. So you can imagine every day she wants to go out and see how the plants are doing. But until now, it's been pretty disappointing because we go out there and we look and there's nothing happening. It's just dirt, right? And so we have to encourage her and assure her, even though you can't see it yet, you have to believe, you have to trust, you have to have faith that under the surface, change is taking place. Transformation is taking place. And we need to keep on watering, keep on doing these things that we know are the right thing to do. And if we do that one day, we're going to see the results. 
And I can't help but wonder if there's some of you here today or out there who, who need this word of encouragement. You're in, you're in the same boat where you say, I'm discouraged because I'm not seeing the effectiveness or the fruitfulness. I feel like I'm doing the right things, but I'm not seeing the fruit of it yet. I want to encourage you, don't grow weary in doing good because in due time, if you don't give up, you will see the harvest. Gardening, whether with plants or in your life, takes faith. You have to trust that even if you can't see it yet, Something is happening. So you trust the system. You do what you know is the right thing to do even before you can ever see the results. Maybe there are some of you, again, you're discouraged because there's an area of your life where you'd like to see more growth than you're currently seeing or, or you, you hoped that it would look different. And I want to encourage you, keep planting Keep watering. Also keep weeding, right? Pulling out the weeds. Keep removing the stones. And in time, you will see the results. I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question in light of this passage. What are some rhythms? What are some structures? What is some organization that you can put in place in your life to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus? What are some rhythms, structures, and organization that you can put into place in your life in order to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's a daily quiet time, a time of reading the Bible and praying that you do every day. Maybe it's joining a community group where you're gonna study the scriptures and pray for other people and have them pray for you. Maybe it's signing up to serve in some way, in some ministry. I know that some people, they, they will say things like this. Oh, I don't want, you know, too much structure in my relationship with God because that's legalistic, right? That's all about rules. Friends, understand, this is not about legalism and it's certainly not about rules. In no way will doing these things cause God to love you more or bless you more. This isn't about rules or legalism. This is about wisdom and practicality and intentionality. It's about moving from having a desire to having a plan. Many people have a desire to grow in their relationship with God, but what they lack is a course of action. Now, certainly, sometimes people do get this backwards. And when they do, by the way, that is religion at its worst. When it's no longer about pursuing a relationship with God, when it just becomes about rules and structure and organization, and it's empty without relationship with God and without a purpose. When that happens, that's one of the reasons why people will say, I like Jesus, but I don't like organized religion. And what I would suggest to you is this, that when someone says that for that reason, what they're really feeling and what they're really disliking is being religious just for the sake of being religious. And in that case, I would agree with them. I don't like being religious for the sake of being religious. And I guarantee to you that Jesus did not support that either. Don't ever be religious just for the sake of being religious. That's pointless. We're not talking about religiosity, though. What we're talking about is if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, if you want your life to be fruitful, then like Solomon did in Israel, create structures and order in your life that makes it conducive for growth and peace. You know, for some people, though, when they say they don't like organized religion, I wonder if the thing they don't like about it is that they're not in control. 
that they're not in control. See, many of us like the idea of knowing God as long as it's on our terms. The problem with that is that God tells us that in order for us to have a relationship with him, we must make him our Lord, which means that we have to submit to him. It means that he tells us how he desires to be worshiped and how he desires that we live. And we submit to that. And that requires humility and submission on our parts. And I wonder if for some of us, the issue is, isn't so much that we don't like organization, but that we don't like not being in control when it comes to God or in, when it comes to our lives. And as we're going to see, Solomon struggled with that very thing himself. He was great when it came to organizing the nation. But when it came to submitting to God's leadership in his own life, he didn't do quite as well. And that's what we're going to see in our next section, section two, which is the problem with horses. Check out what it says in verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now you might read that and say, okay, Solomon had a lot of horses. Good for him. But this is actually a pretty big deal. See, if you, if you are familiar with the law of Moses and you read this verse, verse 26, you can't help but say, uh-oh, this is not gonna be good. And, and let me show you why. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we're gonna read a passage from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17, where God gives instructions to Israel regarding the future kings. Now, this is interesting because this section was written 400 years before Israel ever had their first king. And here's what it says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. You may not put a foreigner over you, one who is not your brother. And then look at verse 16, the first part. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Now what's God's problem with horses? Who doesn't like horses? Well, the issue with horses is not that God doesn't like horses. The issue with horses is that, notice, these horses were not for Solomon to ride himself. He had people who rode them. These horses pulled chariots. You see, in that day, a horse and a chariot was the most sophisticated military technology that existed. It was the most forbid or formidable instrument of war that existed at that time. And so when a king wanted to build his military strength, he would multiply horses and chariots and riders to himself. So what God was saying way back in Deuteronomy was this. When you have a king, he must not put his trust in military might. He must not put his trust in horses and chariots. He needs to find his security, not in military might or anything else, but in me. He says his glory, his security, it needs to come from me, not from his military power. Now, do you remember the promise that God gave to David back in 2 Kings chapter 7? We were reminded of it, by the way, in 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 
2, we were reminded of it. And here's what it said. God told David, if your descendants will trust in me, if they will hold fast to my word with all of their hearts and all of their soul, then you will never cease to have one of your descendants sit on the throne of Israel. What God's saying there is this. No matter what the other nations of the world do militarily, no matter what's going on in the world economically, God said, if you will honor me, then I will protect your throne. They didn't need horses and chariots. What they needed was to give heed to their relationship with God. Now, this doesn't mean that Solomon couldn't have had a horse or maybe even several horses. But what it meant is that he couldn't accumulate horses to build up military strength. And certainly that is what Solomon has done. That's why he has 40,000 stalls of horses with all these chariots and all these riders. The issue here is really this. Solomon knowingly disregarded the word of God. Knowingly. And if you're still not sure that that's the case, then look at what else it says there in Deuteronomy 17 that the kings of Israel were forbidden from doing. It says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Again, that's another thing that Solomon's going to do. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Once again, that's another thing that Solomon's going to do. Solomon's life, sadly, is characterized by the fact that he plays fast and loose with the word of God. It isn't that he didn't know what God wanted him to do. It's that he didn't take it seriously. His obedience to God depended on whether he considered it expedient or not to obey the word of God. He would kind of pick and choose. What characterizes Solomon's life is that he had a divided heart. On the one hand, Solomon loved God and he worshiped God and he made sacrifices to God. And yet in many areas of his life, he did not obey God. And we can't help as we read this, we can't help but think of something that God said back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And here's what it was. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. See, Solomon, he's a mixed bag. On the one hand, he loves God and he worships God. He makes sacrifices, but there are areas of his life where he doesn't obey God and knowingly doesn't obey God and doesn't repent. And friends, I would just say, isn't that true in our lives as well? It's easy to look at Solomon and judge him and say, wow, look at all his mistakes. Look at all his faults. Look how foolish he was. But the truth is, you and I, we're a lot more like Solomon than we would like to admit. All of us have claimed to love God. And yet there are areas of our lives where we have failed and we have fallen short, where we have not submitted our lives wholly to God. And like Solomon, through our failures, through our sins, we have sown the seeds of our own downfall. We've sown the seeds of our own destruction. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God told them, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. And then what happened? They sinned and they didn't die physically in that moment. But what happened is that they brought upon themselves the curse 
of death, the curse of sin, the curse of judgment upon themselves. And the same is true of us through our acts of rebellion, through our acts of disregarding the will of God and the word of God in different areas of our lives. We have brought the curse of sin and death upon ourselves. If you compare the lives of Solomon with his with David, Solomon and his father, David, if you look at the two of them, there's a clear difference. David is called the man after God's own heart. Solomon, on the other hand, is a man with a divided heart. David wasn't perfect, but he was a man who loved God's word and desired to keep it. He writes Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, is David's ode to God's word. He talks about how much he loves it and how much he delights in it. And when David sinned, he was quick to repent. Solomon, though, is a man who makes excuses. He's a man who views God as useful to him to help him get things he needs and accomplish his goals. But David didn't see God primarily as useful to him. He primarily saw God as beautiful to him. To know God was David's goal. See, David was a man of war. Solomon was a man of alliances. And sadly, Solomon also made compromises and alliances with sin and compromise in his life. And this one verse, verse 26, is a huge red flag that Solomon accumulated horses. And we're going to see that throughout his life, these compromises, these acts of disregarding the will of God, these are going to lead to his downfall. And remember, his story is our story. But the story isn't over yet. So let's keep going and talk about the beginning of wisdom. That's our third point. In the final verses of this chapter, verses 29 through 34, that we read at the beginning, we read about how people from all over the world would come to meet Solomon and to listen to his wisdom and his knowledge. We read that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, which I think is nice. It tells us they're not just rounding up here, right? Like 1,005 songs. Tells us some guys that he was smarter than, like that guy Ethan. If you want to know how smart Solomon was, he was smarter than that guy named Ethan, right? So we have some of these Proverbs recorded for us in the book of Proverbs, as well as in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have Solomon's great song of love recorded for us in the book Song of Solomon. We read here that Solomon also increased in knowledge about the natural world, right? So he was one of the smartest, most educated people alive. And yet, here's what's so surprising about Solomon. I want to read to you something that Solomon himself wrote, okay? Solomon himself wrote this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Who said that? Solomon said that. He knew that the fear of the Lord was important, and yet that is exactly what he lacked. See, the fear of the Lord means having the humility, the, the healthy respect before God, that where you, you care about what he says, you understand that he is God. You, you have a respect for his will as expressed in his word. And yet, even though Solomon knew in theory that it was needed and good to have a fear of the Lord, he didn't fear God enough to obey him. He didn't fear God enough to repent when he did something wrong. And here's the thing with Solomon. He was the smartest, wisest person in the world. He knew all the right answers, and yet he failed to do what was right. 
He failed to do what was right. You see, in the book of Romans chapter one, we are told that all of us actually have that same problem. Our problem is not a lack of knowing what is right and wrong. Our problem is deeper than that. Our problem is that we are broken. We're like Solomon. We have failed to do the things that even we ourselves knew were the right things to do. But the good news is there is hope. There is one who is greater than Solomon and he has come to rescue us. In Matthew chapter 12, we read that Jesus was speaking to a group of people and he said this incredible phrase. He said this, when Solomon was alive, people would come from all the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That's the same thing we're reading here in 1 Kings chapter four. But behold, Jesus said, something greater than Solomon has now come. He's talking about himself. How is Jesus greater than Solomon? Here's how. Because unlike Solomon, who knew the right things, Jesus did the right things. Unlike Solomon, whose obedience to God was partial at best, Jesus' obedience to the Father was full and complete. And it is because of Jesus' perfect obedience to God that he is uniquely qualified to be the Savior that we need. You see, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but failed to, a life of perfect obedience to God. And Jesus on the cross died the death that we should have died in judgment for our rebellion, for our disobedience. See, he took our place in judgment so that you could take his place before God as a child of God, loved and accepted, embraced by God and given a destiny and given an identity. See, what we learn from Solomon is that no amount of knowledge can ever save us. What we need is for God to intervene on our behalf and rescue us. And that is what Jesus has done for us. That is what makes him the greater than Solomon. Not only do all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell in him, but he lived a life of perfect obedience so that he could become the savior that we need. You see, what Jesus offers us is not only information, but justification. What justification means is that God takes Jesus's record, right? His resume, the list of his achievements. And then he takes your record in the other hand, everything that you've ever done. And he switches the names on them. And all of your sins and wrongs are accounted to Jesus while all of his righteousness is accounted to you. On the cross, Jesus was treated as you deserved so that the Father could treat you as only Jesus deserved. And the question is, how will you respond to this great act of love that, that Jesus has done for you? How will you respond to this great offer of grace that God extends to you? The only proper response is to embrace this grace by faith, to trust in it and cling to it, Rather than trusting in yourself that you can justify yourself before God, instead you say, no, I'm going to trust only in what Jesus did for me to make me right with God, to justify me before God. But listen, your response can't stop there. So you respond in faith, but your response doesn't stop there. You must also respond with your life by dedicating your life to him who gave his life for you. And rather than having a divided heart like Solomon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can give your whole heart over to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to do that. Lord, we ask, help us to embrace this gospel, this good news by faith. Lord, help us to trust in it and cling to it, to rely on it and believe in it, Lord, that we would not trust in ourselves or rely on ourselves or seek to justify ourselves. But Lord, like Abiathar, we would humble ourselves before you and receive your mercy. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you are the greater than Solomon. You are the one, Lord, who not only knew the right things, but did the right things. Lord, where we have failed, you succeeded. And we thank you, Lord, for this gift of grace that you offer us. Thank you, Lord, for this gift of your love that you give us. So Lord, may we embrace it now by faith. And in response, may we also give you our lives. Lord, thank you for giving your life for us. May we live for you. Lord, help us that we would add to our faith, Lord, these rhythms, these structures, which are gonna help us grow. Lord, we pray that you would point out to us the things in our lives and by your strength, help us to weed out those things that are choking out the life uh, of relationship with you. Those things that are like cancerous growths that just want to take over our lives and destroy us. Lord, would you cut those things out? Would you do surgery on us, Lord? And Lord, we pray, help us to remove the rocks. Lord, would you do that? Would you remove the hard places in our hearts and make us good soil? that can produce fruit for your glory and for the good of others. And we pray, Lord, help us that our hearts would be wholly yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.